This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we come back to the story of Saul and see what is impacting his experience and how that is calling him to impact the Greco-Roman world. That's right. So how about we dive into some text right off the bat, Brent? We're just going to keep moving through Acts. Uh, tell us where we're going to pick up the story and where you're going to start reading here. Give us our first passage. Acts twelve twenty-five. All right. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. All right, so uh, Barnabas and Saul arrive at Cyprus. Seems clear that they're uh, taking the standard route to Asia, grabbing a boat. They're going to head to Asia, um, but they're sailing. They're sailing west, and they're making the normal stop at Cyprus. And um, this is the likely place to begin this first missionary journey. Cyprus is the island that sits just west off the Mediterranean coast from Antioch. It's a logical stop for all ships sailing west. When Barnabas and Saul get to Cyprus. We are told that John Mark is with them as well, by the way. They begin proclaiming this message of a new king and a new kingdom in the synagogues of the region. We are not given the impression that they have a negative experience at all or find any trouble being received by their Jewish brothers. This will be relevant later, by the way. But eventually they meet a Jewish sorcerer. If you're scratching your head at that, does that seem a little odd to you, Brent? That was weird. (laughs) Jewish sorcerer. Uh, You should be scratching your head. That's a direct violation of Torah. Uh, who happens to work, this sorcerer happens to work for the Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus. Uh, You can think of the proconsul as the secretary of state. You can think of Sergius Paulus as that guy in the Roman world. Some think it's a regional, but most scholars uh, say this is an imperial role, the proconsul. Uh, Saul, Shaul, boldly confronts the sinful and deceptive lifestyle of this false prophet Elimus, who is immediately engulfed in darkness and blindness. Upon seeing this encounter, Sergius Paulus believes in the Lord, finds himself amazed at the teaching. What I find so interesting in this story is that Saul changes his name to what, Brent? Paul. Paul. 
Now, why, why would you suppose he does that, Brent? Uh, he has a little bit of a reputation. Sure. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, sure. But why Paul? Like, why not choose, like, George or something like that? Oh. Other than George isn't a very Jewish name. Well, but other than that. Paul's got to have some kind of a meaning behind it. Right. Have some, we, have some we... indication of what his new purpose is. Yeah. And have we heard of a Paul very recently in this story? A Sergius... Paulus. Paulus. Mm. If you immediately made that connection, as Brent and I did, you are astute. It seems that Shaul changes his name to match the name of his first convert. However, if you also thought deeper than that, you are even more astute. Paul changes his own name. This is something that almost never happens in Scripture. Like one, like one of the only examples I can think of, Brent, is Naomi in the book of Ruth. Changes her name to what, Brent? Mara. Mara. Which meant? Bitter. Bitter or rebellious. A name change is almost always, uh, you almost always do that from somebody in authority, like a parent or a rabbi, or somebody has to have authority over you in order for them to change God, change his names. But Paul uh, formally changes his own name. This name change signifies something significant, at the very least, in the consciousness of Paul. What is it? I think the next story is going to help clue us in. So after this encounter, John Mark leaves their company while Barnabas and Paul head to Pisidian Antioch. This is where unfamiliarity with the geography of Asia and Asia Minor will have us miss a beautiful part of this story. Because if you look at that map that we had, uh, the original readers would be shaking their heads as to why they end up in Antioch of Pisidia. It doesn't make any sense. They were clearly headed which direction, Brent? West. West, to the, to the bigger part of Asia, to the dominant part of Asia. Now they're headed due north, into the middle of, in literally the middle of nowhere, Asia Minor. It's a drastic change of route. They would have to sail north to reach the coast, and upon reaching the coast, they would depart on a week-long hike. This hike would be through a region that doesn't even have a road to walk on. Like, they're not even able to walk on a road. This is how out of the way they're going. They would have hiked through the wilderness, and they probably could have counted the people they met on the way with their two hands. What in the world are they doing? It's also going to help to know a few details about Antioch of Pisidia. The city was one of many Antiochs, I believe 14, if I remember correctly, that were planted by Rome throughout the tribal region of Asia Minor. We've already talked about one Antioch, right? Antioch of Syria, right, Brent? Right. It's where the church moved. Now we're talking Antioch of Pisidia, and there's all kinds of other Antiochs. Rome always struggled to conquer the primitive tribal regions since they had no imperial structure. It's easier to go into the kingdom of Pergamum and conquer the kingdom of Pergamum. You fight their army, you win the battle, you conquer the king, and you take over. But in tribal realities, these strong barbaric fighters were such a nuisance to the Romans that they formed treaties to solicit their help in the region rather than conquer them. In order to influence the region with progressive thought and the values of which great worldview, Brent? The Greco-Roman worldview. Also known as? Uh, Hellenism. Hellenism. The Romans planted these cities, these Antiochs. Uh, uh, these Antiochs were basically Rome on steroids. The cities were designed to put Rome on display and all of her military might. Pisidian Antioch was unique because it was known as a miniature Rome built on seven small hills the city had most of the same installations as its capital counterpart. It was literally like a mini, mini Rome, like the city of Rome. In the archaeological ruins of Pisidian Antioch, we have found multiple references to one name of particular interest here, proconsul Sergius Paulus. He actually built the city gate. He paid for the city gate of Pisidian Antioch to be built. Sergius Paulus 
was a resident of Pisidian Antioch. According to one of the inscriptions, he was the one who paid for the installation of that main city gate, which is an impressive structure. Why Barnabas and Paul ran into Sergius on Cyprus is unclear. Was he traveling through? Was he on assignment? Vacation? We don't know. But their next stop after his conversion will be his hometown. It makes me wonder if Paul's excitement after experiencing his first encounter with a convert, coupled with the fact that it's such a high-profile leader, the Secretary of State, affected his mission strategy. Was Paul convinced that he could go straight to the top of Rome? Was his goal to speak directly to the family of Caesar himself? It is impossible to know for sure, but there's certainly a lot of evidence in Paul's writings that will lend credence to his theory. He will tell the Christians in Rome more than once that he cannot wait to what, Brent? He cannot wait to visit them. He wants to come. He wants to go to Rome. It has been his goal to get to Rome ever since his calling, he tells them. We will see all throughout the book of Acts, Paul try to go to Rome and have his mind set resolutely on standing before Caesar. But of course, God has other plans as he often does. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Barnabas and Paul have quite the interaction in Pisidian Antioch, and it's one that's going to shape the contours of our New Testament. I am so excited about our conversation today. Oh, man. So excited. Okay, Brent, go ahead and read us some more. I do have a question. Okay, excellent. So, first of all, you're, you're talking about John Mark. What I read only had, uh, only referenced John instead of John Mark. Yes. How do we know? It's a wonderful question. So, new NIV says John. I'm assuming... Old what NIV. is your, so your new NIV, what does it say in uh, the last verse of uh, chapter 12? Uh, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. Taking with them? Oh, taking with them John, also called Mark. Ah, there you go. John Mark. Ah, I see. See? Yep. It was there the whole time. It was there the whole time, and I, I was not aware of it. Quoting <laughs> Jacob, it's in the text. <laughs> uh, okay, second question, probably more important. How do we know that Sergius Paulus was a convert? Because it says when the proconsul saw what had happened, specifically to uh, Elymas, the sorcerer, when he saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. But does that mean he was a convert? Oh, well, I mean, uh, a convert as in like reference to our last podcast? Yeah, kind of. Um, he, we assume he's Greek with no Jewish background. So at this point, and if he's the proconsul, he bows his knee to not only Caesar, but to all kinds of pagan gods. In fact, one of my great, when we go to Turkey as a study group, one of my questions I love to ask is, what did Sergius Paulus do? The next anniversary, the next birthday of Caesar, when he has to take the imperial oath, which is filled with pagan idolatry, what does he do? So when it says he believes, I think I've always assumed that means he puts his faith in. It's a great question. Doesn't mean that I'm right. I just always kind of made that assumption. But yes, that would be, he is not like a Jew having a repentance, as in Paul, he is a Greek now having to adhere to a whole. And that question, Brent, is actually going to be really, really good by the time we get to the end of session four and end of session five to understand what happened between Jew and Greek. So maybe if we hold on to that, we'll come back to that in the next session. Yeah, I'm sure this is uh, not a simple answer situation. Right. He probably um, had some significant... Uh, unraveling of he life had some soul searching to do, to do. Yes. absolutely all right so let's see uh blah 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 uh on the sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down after the reading from the law and the prophets the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying brothers if you have a word of exhortation for the people please speak 
Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. All right. Now that one little sentence there at the end has a ton of context. So let's uh, let's pick this apart here a little bit. So Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Pisidian Antioch, follow their typical script. I should actually say Barnabas and Paul arrive in Pisidian Antioch. <laughs> it's not Paul and Barnabas yet. That's relevant. Come to Turkey to find out more. They immediately find their Jewish brethren and join them in fellowship and worship. This is what they typically do. Uh, After the normal synagogue service, visiting guests are often invited to share a word of encouragement with the people gathered there. This is a basic gesture, especially for visiting teachers, let alone the fact that Paul is a student of who, Brent? Gamaliel. If he's a student of Gamaliel, you want to hear this guy. This is a big deal. Um, So the fact that Paul is a student of one of the most renowned teachers of Jesus's day of that first century, I'm sure people couldn't wait to hear from Paul. And hear from Paul, they do. We're told that Paul stood up and motioned with his hand for the assembly's attention. One thing to notice is that this 13th chapter of Acts seems to signify the arrival of Paul as teacher. Prior to the story of Pisidian Antioch, Luke is very intentional to say Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, which would signify in Greek language that Barnabas is the leader by putting his name first. After this story, it will become for the rest of the book of Acts with only one exception, Bible trivia, where is that at? Uh, With only one exception, after this story, it will now become switched, Paul and Barnabas. This story appears to be a defining moment for Paul. It seems that the church in Antioch sent Paul out with Barnabas as his teacher. And it is in this story where the roles switch. Barnabas will give Paul the nod. Paul will seize the moment and Barnabas will become the student. Incredible humility, by the way. So Paul stands up and begins his presentation, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. Wait a minute. We need to expound on the rabbinical climate of Asia Minor in the first century. Decades before the ministry of Jesus, the Jewish world in Asia Minor was having to figure out what did they do with Gentiles in their synagogues who wanted to worship the God of Israel. While this was not a problem in the world of Judea and Jerusalem, remember we talked about the two churches last episode, Brent? It's not a problem for the church in the south. It's very much a problem for the church in Greco-Rome. Uh, the Roman world has a very different problem on their hands. We're told by modern... This is all pre-Jesus, by the way, Brent. This isn't just a Christian problem. This is a very Jewish problem in the world of Greco-Roman Asia. We're told by modern scholars that the population of Asia Minor was somewhere close to 20% Jewish. How many people out of five is that, Brent? Be my math wizard here. One out of five. One out of every five people. Folks knew about the Jews. People in Asia Minor had exposure to the Jewish faith, and some of them really liked it. They learned to love the God of Israel and to love his words. They came to synagogue and tried to find a place of worship, and the Jews had to figure out what to do with that. Is it acceptable for a Gentile to worship the God of Israel? All Jews were in agreement. What'd they say, Brent? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. One rabbi, one of them said, hey, Gentiles, we're glad you're here. We love that you love the God of Israel, but it won't do you any good unless you convert, take on circumcision and the rest of the law that it represents, and become Jewish. If you're thinking that such a position sounds a lot like shoo, Brent, sham I, (laughs) then you're dead on. But the other rabbi, what was his name, Brent? Remember, this is before Jesus. Hillel. Hillel. Guy by the name of Hillel said, Gentiles, we're thrilled that you're here, and we love that you love the God of Israel. You are welcome to worship God, and you can even find justification. If Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised, so can you. 
Now Hillel would have remained quite steadfast that these Gentiles were not what, Brent? They're still not. They're still not Jewish. They're still not Jewish. But they can still find the love of God. They were not brothers in the family of God, but they were welcome to be distant cousins. And God loved the cousins too. So this is all well and good. But what does this have to do with the story of Pisidian Antioch? Well, Pisidian Antioch sits on the edge of the region known as Galatia. While almost all of Asia and Asia Minor was very Hillel-driven, almost all of it, very dominant. Uh, which makes sense. I mean, a Jewish world, finding its place within a Roman context, would certainly lean towards exclusion or inclusion, Brent? Uh, inclusion. Inclusion, of course. But the region of Galatia was very different. It was Shammai country. And why do you suppose? What did we say about this region, Brent? These are the guys who want to be left alone. Yeah. It might be... Uh, more tribal. Yeah. More barbaric. More out in the country. More off the beaten path. So if you're Shammai, you're not going to go live in Ephesus. Definitely not. Yeah. You're going to go out and you're going to find a place to set down roots and be your own obedient, devoted, Pharisaic self in that region. That's why Galatia attracted... Shammai people. The Galilee was the original getaway for the right. obedient Jews. And, exactly. And Galatia is the new getaway. Yeah, absolutely. As were many other regions. Galatia represents one of them. Galatia was a very rugged, primitive, off the beaten path, backwoods territory. The Jewish population that settled there purposely did so not to assimilate into the Roman context. Primitive as in they don't have the luxuries of Rome. Sure. They don't have all of the things that Hellenism has to offer. There's no theater. There's no health care. There's like, they're not doing that. Right. And the six quotes from Galatian rabbis in the Mishnah and all six of them are Shammai quotations. There are six quotations, all six of them from Shammai context. So this argument created three different people groups referenced in the land of Asia Minor within a Jewish context. Now, Pisidian Antioch sits on the region. So it doesn't mean it's Galatian. It doesn't mean it's Shammai. In fact, if I'm in Pisidian Antioch, what kind of worldview do you think I'm going to have there, Brent? Roman. I'm going to have more of a, which Shammai or Hillel? Oh, oh. well, Shammai. Hillel? Hillel. Not, Good. Oh, oh. Because if I'm in Pisidian Antioch, I'm in Rome's Rome. I see, I see. Now, the backwoods region is going to be heavily Shammai. But if I'm in Pisidian Antioch, I might even assume I actually have a Hillel. So we still don't know what kind of a synagogue we're in, but we are on the very edge of a very relevant context. Right. So there are people that Sorry, the Jews it's would... Sorry, me a second to like get, yeah. the, get the bearings on Absolutely. This. <laughs> this is actually a very... Part of the reason I love this conversation, I'm so excited about it, is this is really hard to get our minds around, but so radically altering our understanding of the context of the New Testament. So, so, so good. I will definitely have a map. Marty said I might have a map. I will definitely have a map for you. <laughs> Because I need to, yeah. It'll yeah. be it'll be better than the map that Marty's looking at now. Yeah, nice. We've got okay, to make this as easy to understand as possible. All right. I like it. So there are people that the Jews would call, there are three groups here, brothers and brothers. Who do you suppose that are, Brent? That's the Jews. That's just Jews, right? But they also spoke of, all throughout rabbinic literature, of children of Abraham. Children of it. So brothers are Jewish brothers. Children of Abraham was a designation given to, who do you think, Brent? Well, um, I guess not not strictly Jews. Okay, good. You're thinking right. It's hard to imagine that they're they're like grouping in with uh, the descendants of Ishmael, though. No. Okay, but you're thinking you're thinking correct. Okay. So the children of Abraham is a designation given to proselytes. 
converts who were not born Jewish, but had decided to take on circumcision and follow the law and become completely Jewish. Mm, yes. Okay. So brothers are who, Brent? The Jews themselves. Okay. Children of Abraham, also known as Benai Avraham. Those are converts to Judaism. Okay. Adopted converts. sons, you might say. Absolutely. And then there was a group of people who called themselves in the Greek, and what we find in Luke, Theosebes. Theosebes. It's a term we translate as God-fearer or God-fearing Gentiles. The Jewish argument was swirling about which group, Brent? Were they confused about the Jews? No. Were they confused about the proselytes? No. Who were they confused about? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. The, the God-fearing Gentiles. The Theosebes. What do we do with the Theosebes? What do we do with the God-fearing Gentile? Everybody agreed about the brothers and the children of Abraham, but what do we do with the Theosebes? It's impossible to know which direction the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch leaned, but it's safe to say the cultural argument was a tense one. They sit right on the edge of Galatia. We also know that whatever their position, Paul references the presence of all three groups more than once. So he, he just got done saying, brothers, and what did he say? What was the term? And you Gentiles who worship God. All right. So, yes, uh, where's my quote there? Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. So we have, we have all three groups in attendance here. Later on, Paul's going to stand up. We're about ready to hear Brent read this. Men of Israel, you Gentiles, and, and actually this needs to be translated correctly. So the one that we just read was men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. Later, Paul's going to say this in Acts 13, 26. If it's translated correctly, as it was in the old NIV, NIV 84 edition, it will read, brothers, comma, children of Abraham, comma, and you God-fearing Gentiles. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. What does verse 26 read in the new NIV? It just doesn't have brothers at the beginning. Exactly. It's just gotten rid of that, thinking, oh, that's redundant and repetitive. We don't need to put that in there. But it should be translated, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. Brothers is group one, which was who, Brent? The Jews. Children of Abraham, group two. The converts. And you God-fearing Gentiles, group three. Theosebes. Theosebes. God, Paul has some good news, a gospel that's about ready to stir the pot. What will, I just heard a great, a great, I've never heard this phrase before. <laughs> I love this. Totally irrelevant, but nevertheless, somebody told me, if you're going to stir the pot, you got to lick the spoon. <laughs> I had never heard that before. That is fantastic. I guess that's, I mean, that's true. That is what Paul is going to experience. He's going to stir the theological pot here. What will their reaction be? I think we might be surprised. So Brent, how about you read to us the next section of Acts 13? Let's listen to this, ex this experience. All right. So picking up here, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. It's very, very generous of Paul to put it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Jewish humor there at its, at its finest. Yeah. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. 
From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached the uh, repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you were looking for, but there is one coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, so disappointed in you, new NIV. So let me just add it in there. Brothers, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. All right, so Paul stands up and addresses this mixed crowd of three groups of people, Jews, converts, and theosabes, God-fearing Gentiles. He confronts all three groups with a teaching that boggles the mind, in typical fashion, for the record of Acts. Paul begins by outlining the narrative history of the Jewish people in a way that sets up the point he's trying to make. Paul doesn't sugarcoat the history of his fellow Jews. He talks about their history as a stubborn people led out of Egypt, about how God had to, as you pointed out, what's the word, Brent? He had to... Oh, what did I say? Oh, yeah. Endure. In, uh, hang on. He endured their conduct in the wilderness. That's right. Endured their... Con- I think there's a little bit of humor there. I think the people listening would have chuckled. I don't think it's a heavy-handed, Paul angry, spitting fire. I think he's just telling it like it is. And I think the Jewish people in the audience are like, yeah, absolutely. You know, enduring their conduct, enduring their conduct and helping them find their inheritance. He sums up the history of the judges and and Shaul as their first king, alluding to the frustrating story that lay behind Saul's rule. He mentions the pinnacle of Jewish history, particularly as it's seen from the first century by speaking of the reign of David as king, who was after God's own heart. By the way, on the Saul ruling, it says he ruled 40 years. Did Saul actually rule 40 years? Yes. Huh. Yep. I didn't realize that. I don't know if that's exact to the day. Sure, yeah, sure. 40 years, yeah. That's uh, pretty, pretty interesting. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, from this history, Paul connects Jesus directly to David and the work of John the Baptist. He speaks of the anointed calling of both and alludes to the fact that Jesus is Messiah, Mashiach. He then points out how Judaism's leadership, notice the Judeans, not just the Jews, the Judeans did not recognize Jesus and made the foolish mistake of putting him to death. He speaks of the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom. Paul then goes back to recap the amazing story surrounding the resurrection by teaching through a series of, listen, brilliant remez, remez quotations. 
which happened to function as a sermon in and of themselves. Like all our listeners, back in session three, you were equipped with Pardes, Peshat, Remes, Drash. You know how the science works. So now look at Paul's sermon. I'm not going to do it here. I don't have time. But you look at all of those references that Paul has in his sermon. Go back and look at the context and look at the brilliant sermon that Paul is teaching underneath the surface of his sermon he's teaching on the surface. It's absolutely stunning. This is Paul. He's brilliant. And he ends his sermon with a direct and challenging application. It is the job of the Jewish people to carry on this story and be about the ministry of forgiveness of sin. He warns that if they miss this calling, they will be the foolish scoffers spoken of in the Psalms. Paul's message it's one of my first observations. Paul's message is directly aimed at the Jews in attendance. While Paul recognizes all of those in attendance, his first sermon that day is a sermon for the Jewish audience. He spoke to the Jewish story and how Jesus fit into the grand narrative of God. He continually references the we of the Jewish people throughout the telling. He endured our, he endured their we there. He he talks about the Jewish story. He continually references the we of the Jewish people throughout the telling of the story. It is to us, Paul said, it is to us that the message has been sent. Who is the us, Brent? Uh, To the Jews. To the Jews. Paul's point is that it is their story. It's their calling. It's the calling of the Jewish people to carry this story well. Second point that I want to bring out is that Paul is certainly not playing it safe for his first public sermon. (laughs) Paul is a fiery preacher in his first day. As Jewish teacher trained under Gamaliel, he is directly confronting his Jewish audience. He isn't trying to hedge his bets. He refers to the background of a stubborn people. He critiques their leadership as being blind to the purposes of God. He even closes the sermon with a thunderbolt challenge not to be a scoffing fool. Paul isn't concerned with making or keeping friends. Now, how do you suppose the people respond to this message that day in Pisidian Antioch? Did you say they loved it? They welcomed it with open arms. Of course you didn't, because you've already been taught your whole life that those stupid Jews hated the gospel and everything from Jesus and rejected Paul everywhere he went. But unfortunately, you have been taught all wrong. Brent, will you read me the next couple verses in in Acts 13? As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, note Paul and Barnabas, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. All right, I'm going to read it out of my old NIV. Listen to this. As they went out, the people begged that these things, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout, what Brent? Converts. Converts to Judaism followed. So there's group one and two followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to what? Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. Wait, what? Let's recap. Paul (laughs) spoke a challenging word that day. He spoke very directly about the crucifixion of Jesus. He taught at length on this teaching about his resurrection, and the people begged them to come back and teach them more. Brothers and sisters, All my Podrishner listeners, the Jewish assembly did not have a single problem with the message of Jesus and what so many of us call the gospel. 
In fact, if you were to begin scouring the book of Acts, how many stories do you think you would find, Brent, about the rejection of the Jews or the earliest followers of Jesus? How many times do you think that they ever just rejected the whole Jesus and resurrection thing? I mean, even Paul said it. It's the, the rulers didn't recognize him. And right. they, they put him to death. It doesn't say anything about anyone else. Sure. And, and the people, like do you think we're going to find this? Do you think we're going to find this all throughout the book of Acts? Yeah. All right. So what is it that if they don't get upset about Jesus, if they don't get upset about the resurrection, if they don't get upset about the crucifixion, what are they going to get upset about? They're not getting upset about the gospel. They have no problem with Jesus. Like, I can't say this enough. Like, this has been so butchered in New Testament theology. Like, it's right there. It's staring us right there in the pages of Acts. So what are they going to get upset about? Brent, keep reading. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word the of the Lord. The whole city? The whole city of Pisidian Antioch. Like, some 8,000 people? Like, I don't know if we're—I don't read that literally, literally, but the whole city? Wow. Can you imagine? How are you going to feel, Brent? Now, we all talk like—we we, we love to talk a good, a good game, don't we? We're talking about church. And I love to ask this question. I'm like, how would you feel if your whole city showed up to church? They're hanging in the windows. They're sitting on the floor. They're packing the hallways. They're in the overflow rooms. They're out in the parking lot. Last week, your church was at a coffee shop. This week, it's at the football stadium. Yeah. We all act like, oh, we would love it. No, you wouldn't. You would freak out all these dirty little outsiders. Okay, go ahead and keep reading. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the response. Listen. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Don't you dare critique them for that. We would all do the exact same thing. Go ahead. The whole city? The whole city. You got to be kidding me. Okay, go ahead. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Oh, snap. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord has commanded who? Us. Us. And who is the us? The Jews. The Jews. And since you don't want to do what God has asked us to do, we have to. We are going to turn because that is what, not because you reject it, we're turning to the Gentiles, but we're turning to the Gentiles because that is what God has always told us we had to do. This is the story. Go ahead. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And this story is going to continue throughout the rest of the chapter and the next chapter as they go to Iconium and then Lystra and then Derby, continuing to go and spread this message. That's, we're not going to cover that, but you can read about it. Read about this same method that they use when they go places. But let me wrap this up. It was difficult for this group of religious God worshipers to accept the fact that all of those people, you know about those people, don't you, Brent? We all know about those people whoever those people are for us. Absolutely. Those people might be allowed into the family of God. While the debate was open between Shammai and Hillel regarding the place of justification in the life of the Theosebes, what no rabbi had ever suggested was that a Gentile could be a full-fledged child of God. While the argument is initially intriguing to them, when they see the synagogue fill up the next week with unclean Gentiles, they cannot continue. So Paul and Barnabas confront their brothers about this very message. They spoke the week of the the message that they spoke of the week prior. 
This is their message to carry into the world. This is what God has always been up to. But since they don't want to be a part of God's great project, or in their words, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul and Barnabas must now turn their attention to the good news that they are there to proclaim. If the people of God are going to reject their calling, then Paul and Barnabas will fulfill it. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. I worry that if we miss this part of the story, we are missing the great backdrop to the New Testament. This is what the gospel does to the world of Asia and Asia Minor. It brings all those on the outside inside. Who does this sound like? Brent? Uh, Jesus. It sounds like, and what, what, what record of Jesus? Matthew. Matthew, the agenda of the... The Mumser. The Mumser. This might be why Marty chose Matthew in session three. <laughs> and I hope our listeners are familiar with Matthew at this point. <laughs> this is found all over the New Testament. This is the story. If you let yourself become circumcised, Paul will say, the gospel is of no use to you. We'll look at that in Galatians. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but citizens and fellow members of God's household, Paul said to the Ephesians. And now those of you who were far off have been brought near, the New Testament will say. I fear we may have missed the point, and somewhere along the way, we may have exchanged the good news and the truth of the New Testament narrative for a message about heaven and hell and escaping a world doomed to destruction. But the story has never been about that. The story has always been about a God who is redeeming this world. The story, a very Jewish story, by the way, has always been about a community of folks, a kingdom of priests confronting the world and showing them God is, in fact, for them. And they do have a place at his table. God's story has always been an invitation to trust, to trust the story that there is a Sabbath rest available to all, available to all, available, period, to, period, all period. You see, things don't change much over the course of 2,000 years. There are still groups of people and entire institutions who claim to speak for God and are certain they have finally figured out who gets in and who gets out. They seem to believe, contrary to the teachings of the very Jesus they claim to worship, that they have stumbled across the guest list to the great wedding banquet, and they know who's getting in and who's staying out. I can't tell you, Brent, how many emails I have to field and messages and Twitter comments about, okay, but this group is still out, right? Like, okay, we're, we're, we, we got it. But this group, you're not saying that this group is in. This group is still out. There are even people who talk about the gospel being for all people. Until your synagogue is full of a bunch of people who don't look like you or until a handful of those people come and sit in the front row of your church. We all have, quote, those people. We all know who those people are. It's their economic status, it's their skin color, it's their sexual orientation, it's their political affiliation, it's their dress code, it's a myriad of other things, even less significant and humiliating to admit. Quite frankly, they just aren't like us. And to hear God is inviting all people to the table to be his kids, well, that just doesn't sit well with us. But it's the gospel we're called to carry into the world around us. It is the announcement of a better king 
a new king and a new kingdom. It's what he's been doing since the dawn of creation. It's the story he's been telling the whole time. It rings of Genesis 1 and the early episodes of our journey. And I believe he is hoping with tears in his eyes that we today on this side of history will be humble enough to accept it. We have so much more to talk about, Brent, but that is a good place to end for today. Well, in the interest of me doing my typical thing and uh, coming around to the uh, end of your thrilling conclusion to the podcast, I have uh, a completely unimportant question. (laughs) Uh, So it says the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. What in the world does that mean? Because that feels like a weird way to say that. Yeah, and there's some there's some good conver- conversation there. Tell me how your translation worded it one more time. The Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Okay, so they're going at, they're going after the leaders of Roman culture, and I th- I think the way I have always wanted to read that because there's there may be some context that we're not even aware of of why they're going after that specific group. But it appears that they're trying to go and they're trying to say, listen, if this is true, you're about ready to lose your Greco-Roman foothold. If the whole city, tell me how Rome feels if the whole city gathered at the synagogue, a synagogue that says you can't bow your knee to Caesar. Like this is a very unpatriotic gathering as far as the Roman is concerned. And I think it's very easy if they're wanting to disrupt this momentum, they go to Rome and they say, these people don't even love Rome. You're about ready to lose your Roman foothold. And so they go to the, the God-fearing, because they got to go to the Greeks to help get this movement started. So they go, they go to the God-fearing women of high standing and the leaders, because they're the ones that are going to be able to shut this thing down and have a lot of Greek influence. So that's how I read it. Could be more going on there, but it's a great little phrase there that I tried to skip over and you appropriately pulled me out of there. Well, that's what I like to do. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Asking good questions, wrestling with the text. All right. If any of you have questions like that, go to BayamontDiscipleship.com. Go to our contact page. You can email us there. And uh, Marty would love to get your questions and uh, dig through this stuff together. We love digging through the text together and and pulling everything out. We believe that every word is important. It's there for a reason. And so even though we can't cover every single word on the podcast, we do want to study every word. So, And we want to do that with you. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast today. We'll talk to you again soon.